thank you for being here this morning. We are glad that you're here. <clears throat> I know that there are a lot of things competing for your time and for your energy, and uh, that's everything from, you know, kids' sports to sleeping in uh, to going out of town to the lake or to the beach. And, and so um, for those of you here this, here this morning, I'm just thankful that you've made this a priority, and so we're thankful that you're here to worship God. Um, we are obviously are um, on, the, on the end of this weekend where we've had the sexuality seminar. So, Bob, thank you for putting that together. Um, a lot of other people in the church have sort of pitched in lots and lots of time and energy to make that happen. And then, of course, we're a week out um, from Easter. And so as I thought about, all right, what should I preach on today um, in light of those two things, one of the things that I really thought a lot about was I thought about the Gospel of John. And what we see in the Gospel of John is that over and over again, Jesus is coming to people and he's inviting them into a new life with him. He's inviting them into a new life um, of human flourishing. And so there's story after story of Nicodemus and John the Baptist and Andrew and John and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and all these people. And Jesus invites them out of their old life into a new life. And so I thought maybe there would be a passage from the book of John that we could take a look at today that makes that same offer of a new life. Uh, Before we begin, let me take a moment, however, and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these people. I thank you that you have drawn them here. I thank you, Father, that regardless of whatever their human motivations are this morning for being at Seven Hills Fellowship, pure, impure, mixed, Father, your motivation, I believe, is to draw them um, to your son, Jesus. I pray that your motivation is, uh, is to demonstrate yourself to be a good father um, who loves your children. Father, I think your, your motivation is to see the name of your son, Jesus, lifted up. I, see, I think your motivation, Father, is to wean us uh, out of our kingdoms and, and seeking the glory of our names and to seeking your kingdom and the glory of your name, Father, not just for your own sake, Father, but for our sakes, Father, that this is what we need that what we need in order for our lives to flourish is to stand in the presence of the transcendent one. And so, Father, we come today and we stand in your presence. And, Father, I ask that no one would be able to leave this place this morning without having an encounter with you where they really are changed, Father. So let us not leave this place this morning without being changed. Give us a glimpse of yourself. We pray all these things now. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So there were three uh, what they call high masters in the age of the Renaissance. Um, There was a man named Leonardo da Vinci, there was a man named Michelangelo, and there was a man named Raphael. And uh, Raphael was uh, probably maybe the the least well-known of these three, although at the time he was very well-known and very respected. Each of those three high masters and high artists would compete for various commissions um, from different churches and the Catholic Church and the Vatican and all of these things. And uh, they were um, vicious competitors. They were also friends. They pushed each other to do great work. If you've ever been to Europe, Italy in particular, you've probably seen their works. If you took a Western Civ class in high school or in college, you've seen the works of these three high artists. We're going to talk about a work of art today by a man named Raphael. So he uh, actually died in about 1520. But about 10 years before that, he had a good, good friend, and his good, good friend was getting married, and so Raphael decided to paint him a a picture. And the picture he decided to paint, the painting, uh, is a picture that we now call the the Madonna del Cardellino. 
And, uh, and it was this beautiful picture. It was a picture of, uh, of Mary, and at her feet was, uh, were infants John the Baptist and an infant Jesus, and they're playing at her foot. There's a little bird in the picture, which is called a goldfinch, and this goldfinch has a little thorn in its mouth, and that was symbolic of the suffering of Christ and the crown of thorns, and she's wearing a red um, uh, robe, and that, again, points to the suffering of Christ. It's a beautiful picture. And so at the day of his friend's wedding, he presents this beautiful picture, the Madonna del Cardellino, to his friend, and his friend is just overjoyed. He's so thankful. They hang it in his house in this sort of you know, public place, and it's really the possession that this family prizes the most among all their other possessions. Well, several years later, there was an earthquake, and this earthquake completely destroyed, uh, destroyed, destroyed the home that the painting was in. And so later, as the people came to sort of dig through the rubble of the home that had been destroyed by the earthquake, they kept finding piece after piece after piece of this painting by Raphael. And that was the family's prized possession, and so they wanted to do everything they could to try to restore it again, but it had been broken into 17 pieces. We actually have a a picture of an x-ray that takes a sort of shows you part of what that picture would have looked like. You can even see some of the repair work in the bottom left-hand corner. You can see some of the iron nails that they used to try to piece it back together. They brought it to an, a local artisan who, who did his best to sort of glue some pieces together, to put some iron nails in, and then paint over the broken places. But after his attempt at restoration, the painting was just, you know, it was just a mess. It was almost worse than it was before. And over the course of the next 500 years, other artists would sort of try their hand at fixing and restoring this painting. They would paint over the broken pieces. They would, you know, add more glue here and there until really into the, in the mid-1990s it was being stored at the Uffizi Gallery. And after 500 years of all of these attempts at restoration and all of these attempts to make it as good as new again, it actually was much, much worse. All those attempts at restoration had done more harm than good. The original beauty of the piece was completely obscured by all of those attempts at restoration. Now, in the story today that we're going to be reading in John chapter 4, there's another story of an attempt at restoration. And it's about another great piece of art. In this case, however, instead of it being a painting, it's actually a woman. It's the story that we call the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, we're introduced to another badly damaged work of art. But in this case, it's by not just a master artist, but the master artist. Let's jump into John chapter 4. Begins by saying this, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, just very quickly here. Uh, There were points in time in which Jesus was under pressure and his life was threatened by the Pharisees. This was not one of those times. In fact, this was exactly the opposite reason. He left the area around Jerusalem to go back towards home precisely because the people were wanting to sort of give him more power. And the problem with that is that he was there for a very particular mission. In fact, uh, what we see here is when it says that he had to go through Samaria, there wasn't a geographical reason he had to go through Samaria. In fact, more often than not, Jews would actually go around Samaria when they went to the Sea of Galilee because they didn't want to go through Samaria because those people were their enemies. And so when we're told here that Jesus had to go through Samaria, what John is communicating was that Jesus was on a divine mission, that he was heading to Samaria for a very particular purpose. He had some work to do, verse 5. Verse 5 says this, 
So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. So here's Jesus, after four chapters of emphasizing his divinity, doing miracles, impressing all of these people. Here, we get a glimpse of Jesus' humanity. He's exhausted. He's worn out. He's tired out. He sits down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, again, we have to almost read this with new ears and see it with new eyes, because a lot of the editorial comments in here you know, we're either kind of familiar with, and so they don't really stand out to us, or we're not Jewish from 2,000 years ago, so they don't stand out to us. But she's shocked, right? This woman at the well is shocked that here's this Jewish man, and he's speaking to her. Not only was she shocked, but the readers, the people that would have read John's gospel would have run across this story, and this would have been shocking to them as well. In fact, this entire story is filled with shocking uh, cultural sort of truths, First of all, the reason that she was shocked is because Jesus was speaking to her, and she was a Samaritan. Now, just let me tell you this, that back in uh, 781 BC, the Assyrians had conquered Jerusalem. They took the Jews out of Israel. They left some behind, and then they imported people from other countries that they had defeated. And those people intermarried with the Jews that remained, and they sort of formed these hybrid religions and hybrid families. And so the pure Jews who had come back to Israel looked at these Samaritans, and they really thought of them as sort of their philosophical and theological enemies. And so here's Jesus talking to a Samaritan, the enemies of the Jews. And not only is Jesus talking to a Samaritan, but he's talking with a Samaritan woman, right? A Samaritan woman. The, the uh, rabbis in that day and age said, you shouldn't even talk to your wife in public, right? You were supposed to talk to a woman in public, and yet here is Jesus on this mission bestowing dignity upon this Samaritan woman. That would have been shocking. What's even more shocking, however, is not only that she was a Samaritan, it's not only that she was a woman, it's that she was alone, right? And so the readers who would have been reading this, this would have been, again, this would have been totally inappropriate. So here's Jesus talking to this woman, and he's alone with her. It even goes you know, so far as to say that the disciples had gone into town. And so the readers, when they read this, would have been uncomfortable. Like, what is Jesus doing? This doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but it was a massive deal for them. This was so inappropriate culturally. And then even more shocking is that Jesus asks her for a drink. This would have made him ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean. And so Jesus was doing all these things because he was on a mission that superseded any type of cultural propriety. Verse 10, Jesus answered her when she asked him, how can you do this? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? One of the themes that comes out throughout Scripture, and especially in the book of John, is uh, there's always sort of this tension between Jesus talking about spiritual things and people think he's, he's talking about, you know, physical things. And that's probably what was happening here, just like with Nicodemus, when, uh, when Jesus talks about being born again of water and of the Spirit. She thought he meant like some sort of running water, like a stream instead of well water. Verse 12, 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The conversation has taken a turn. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, what you can't see in this, because it kind of pops out in the Greek more than in the English, is this lady, she's sort of answering in sort of a sarcastically joking kind of way, like, hey, great, I'll take some of that living water because that way I won't have to come here to draw water anymore, right? She's kind of joking with him. Right? The, the sort of, there's a sense in which her initial shock is giving way to some comfort so much that she's joking with him. And then verse 16, Jesus says this. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Now, again, just like the statement where in the Greek it's clear that she's joking, the Greek in this section um, makes it clear that she's responding in a, in a way that's very curt and is very short. And there's a sense in which she's letting Jesus know that he's sort of just gone someplace that's a little too personal. He's gotten a little too close, right? Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, it's hard to tell what's going on here, but it's fair to guess that on the one hand, she felt very uncomfortable because Jesus had just revealed something about her. She'd never met him before. She knew he was Jewish. She knew he wasn't from around there, right? They didn't have Facebook back then to sort of be able to investigate people's backgrounds and lives. And somehow Jesus knew this painfully shameful history of her life. And so on the one hand, she's impressed. She probably feels a little bit uncomfortable. And it's also clear here that she very quickly wants to change the subject away from her personal life to something that is theological or something that's more theoretical. And she says, in probably awkwardness, let's change the subject. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerasim, nor in Jerusalem, the place of the legitimate temple. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verse 24, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Again, this is right on the heels of John chapter 3, Nicodemus. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Basically, what she says here is, look, I think you might be a prophet, but in terms of worship, well, we're just going to have to wait and see about that. The good news is when the Messiah comes, he's going to clear all this stuff up for us, to which Jesus replies, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he, right? He reveals to her 
who he is, why it is that he knows these things about her. Now, let me just call time out here really quickly and say, um, I've talked with Krista about this numerous times over the course of the week. There literally are probably like 11 or 12 points I could make from this passage of Scripture, but I'm going to very quickly only make three. The first is this, is we know from this story and we know from the, the editorial clues that this woman was badly broken, right? She was a mess. And, uh, and again, let me, let me just jump in and say this. Part of the reason we know this is because some of the details we see in the reporting. One, there was a well in Sychar, that's the town where they were. This was not that well. This was a well that was on the outskirts of town. This was Jacob's well. And so here is this woman, the Samaritan woman, and she's not going to the center of town to draw water. Instead, she's going to this well in the outskirts of town. That's one clue. A second clue that we see here is the editorial comment by John here is that this was noon, right? And so she's going in the middle of the day. All the archaeological records make it very clear that when people went to draw water, they drew water in the morning and they drew water in the evening. They did not draw water in the middle of the day. So one, she's at this well in the outskirts of town, not in town. Two, she's doing it in the middle of the day. And three, she's alone, right? She's by herself, right? These are all clues. Again, the architectural, uh, the uh, archaeological records make it clear that when women went to draw water in the morning and in the evening, they went in groups. They didn't go alone. This woman is living in fear. She's living in shame, and she's hiding, right? She's hiding her shame. We're going to find out in a little while why that is. But let me, let me just pause here for a second, and let me help you identify with the woman at the well. And let me just tell you that we, like her, all hide our brokenness and our shame. We just do it in some different ways. So one way in which we do it is we delete our search history, right? Hide my shame. You know, maybe we communicate via Snapchat. We hide our shame. You know, maybe we do it late at night alone in such a way so that we hide our shame, but we all hide our brokenness in various ways, right? Number two, sometimes we hide our shame by seeking to control it or maybe control our external lives. You can hide your brokenness by looking good on the outside. You can make good grades. You can lift weights. You can be involved in student government. You can have a good job. You can be in ministry. I'll be honest with you and say this was my, has always been my preferred method of trying to hide my brokenness and hide my shame. If I can be Brian Pierce and if I can wear nice clothes and if I can have a nice haircut and if I can say yes, sir, and no, sir, and if I can never offend anybody and always be nice and sort of always ask lots of questions about other people so I don't ever have to talk about myself, then I can hide my shame, right? We all hide our shame in different ways. Sometimes we even hide our shame by embracing it, right? That would be a younger brother kind of thing to do, just by being out there about our shame. On the way to the sexuality seminar yesterday morning, I was listening to NPR and there was actually an interview with a woman who was involved in the sex uh, industry. And it's interesting because they um, made a point at the very beginning of, the, of the, the little piece to say, we've changed her voice, we've changed her name. And they went on about interviewing this woman who works in this industry. And they talked about how, you know, it was funny, they talked about at the beginning about how this was just something that she had chosen to do. They made a big point of, and she made a big point of saying, this is a choice I've made. You know, this is something that I've freely decided to do. But it was interesting in the interview 
because there were several points at which, as the interviewer asked her questions, she said, she said, down deep inside, I feel like I'm actually violating who I really am. In other words, there's just part of me that knows this isn't who I was made to be, even though I live this sort of externally sort of life that, that where I'm embracing my brokenness, I'm not hiding it from anybody, but down deep inside, I realize I'm violating who I am. In the end, this woman was badly broken, and she was hiding her shame, and so are we, right? We all hide our shame. The woman at the well, this woman at NPR, and us too, we all hide our brokenness. The second thing we see in this passage is that all of the attempts at restoration or all of our attempts at self-restoration, all of the woman at the well's attempts at self-salvation and restoration, they only made matters worse, okay? Very quickly, there's this section of the scripture here where Jesus says, go get your husband, and she says, I don't have a husband, and Jesus says, that's right, you've had five, and the man you're now living with is, uh, is not your husband at all. It is almost certain here that she was wounded in some way prior to this attempt at self-restoration, maybe by someone who was supposed to take care of her, maybe by someone that was supposed to love her, maybe in some other way, but she was wounded in some way that, that probably wasn't her fault, but she sought to restore herself, to save herself, uh, to put herself back together again. And the way that she seemed to be trying to do it here is by finding her identity or her security, or her safety, or her meaning through men. Man number one, man number two, man number three. It doesn't say that they all died. They might have. Chances are um, these weren't deaths. Maybe these were divorces. She kept looking for meaning and looking for love and looking for fulfillment. And then that guy that she's now living with, even uh, that man, now she's not living with him, even still, she's looking for salvation through these other people. And guess what? She ends up more and more and more broken than she was actually when she started. That's always the way it works. Whenever we seek to sort of restore ourselves apart from God, we actually make matters worse. Some people grew up in a home where their parents didn't choose them. Maybe some of you grew up in a home like that. Your parents were busy working. Your dad was busy playing golf. Your dad preferred UGA football, right? And so maybe that person that was supposed to choose you didn't choose you. And so now you'll take anyone who does choose you, right? Because you're longing to be filled. You're longing to be chosen. So it's, it's maybe the girl that always dates the bad guy. You know, we know some of those people. You know, maybe it's the guy who's so hungry for acceptance that he always has to have a girlfriend. He always has to be chosen by someone. But those are all attempts at self-restoration. And you reach a point in life where at some point in time you look and you go, this is not working, right? It's harming me. It's making matters worse, right? Maybe your attempts at restoration grow out of the fact that maybe nobody ever championed you. Maybe no one ever affirmed you. And so maybe the way it, you've chosen to try to restore yourself is by living your life to gain other people's praise and affirmation, right? You do that by sports. If I can just be a good athlete, then even though my dad didn't affirm me and champion me, maybe somebody will, a coach or people at the school. Maybe it's academic achievement. Maybe, maybe if only I can make good grades, then people will celebrate me. Maybe they'll affirm me. Maybe it's professional achievement. If I you know, can become a lawyer, if I can become a doctor, if I can you know, get my master's in teaching, then maybe... You know, maybe you'll actually finally believe that I'm worthy and people will affirm me. We all attempt 
these ways of restoration. Sometimes our way of sort of restoring ourselves is to just simply shut down our hearts, you know? Sometimes it's to say, well, the way that I'm going to deal with all this brokenness and all this hurt is I'm going to become somebody who can never be hurt again. C.S. Lewis addresses this in The Four Loves. It's not going to be up on the screen. I'm just going to read it. But he says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it, that is your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Like I said, it's not going to be up on the screen. (laughs) We're all broken, and we hide our brokenness. And the way that we respond to that brokenness and shame is, is apart from God, we try to restore ourselves. We try to redeem ourselves. We try to patch ourselves up. And all of those attempts at self-restoration apart from God, they only make matters worse, right? You and I do it. We do it. The woman of the well was doing it. And the good news is, is that Jesus was on a mission, right? He was on a mission of restoration. He was on a mission to restore her. He was on a mission to offer her new life. That was Jesus' mission. I came to seek and to save the lost, right? That you might have life that is truly life. So Jesus here offers her restoration. And again, I could read all these verses. I'm going to read verse 10 very quickly. But he talks about it in various ways. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Part of what he's doing is he's saying, you're desperately thirsty and I have the only thing that satisfies you. But here's the interesting twist. He offers her restoration, but he begins her restoration by uncovering her wound, right? Listen to verse 16 and 17, 18. He told her, go call your husband and come back. That is not nice, right? What Jesus is doing here is not nice. It's loving, but it's not nice. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband, The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. She has this wound, and Jesus rips off the bandage, and he puts his hand in the wound, and he presses down, right? And he basically is saying is, what he's saying is, everything you've tried to satisfy you, to give your life meaning, to give your life security, in order to have that which truly satisfies you, I have to reveal to, your, to you, your own wound. I've got to press into it. Now, in all irony of ironies, I'm talking about the woman at the well, and I'm going to read a quote from Wild at Heart, which is a book about men. <laughs> so read, uh, or just follow along with me or listen to me as I read this quote from Wild at Heart. And you can just substitute person for man here, but every, he says this, every man carries a wound. Every person carries a wound. I've never met a man without one. No matter how good your life may have seemed to you, You live in a broken world full of broken people. Your mother and father, no matter how wonderful, couldn't have been perfect. She is a daughter of Eve, and he is son of Adam. So there's no crossing through this country without taking 
a wound. They may have come from other sources, a brother, an uncle, a coach, or a stranger. But come they do, and every wound, whether it's assaultive or passive, delivers with it a message. The message feels final and true, absolutely true, because it's delivered with such force. From the place of our woundedness, we construct a false self, right? We try to save ourselves. The imposter, this false self, is our plan for salvation. And here's the key phrase here. So God must take it all away, right? It's, it's ultimately an act of love where God goes, ooh, you've tried to bind up that wound, right? You've tried to plug the holes in the bottom of the cistern. You've tried to fill it with all this stuff, but I've got to take it all away, right? I've got to take it all away. He goes on to say, he will wound us in the very place where we have been wounded, right? Husband number one take him away. Husband number two, take him away. Husband number three, take him away. Husband number four, take him away. Husband number five, take him away, right? The man you're living with now, number six, or who knows what number, take him away. Why? Why? God must take it all away because he loves us too much to let us hide from our shame, and he loves us too much to let us ignore our wound because a wound that is unacknowledged is a wound that will remain unhealed. A wound that remains unacknowledged is a wound that will remain unhealed. He has to take it away. Now, in every narrative of Scripture, whether it's a parable or a historical narrative, we should always ask ourselves, who am I in the story? Am I the disciples who went away into town? Am I Jesus sitting on the edge of this well on a mission? Or am I this woman who comes to draw water in the middle of the day. And I think it's safe to say that in this narrative, every single one of us in the room this morning is the woman at the well. That's us. That's our character in the story. We've been wounded. We've been damaged by forces outside of our control. Maybe we were wounded by the cruel circumstances of life, maybe by a stranger, but more likely we've been wounded by someone who was supposed to protect us and keep us safe, right? That theme came out loud and clear this weekend at the uh, sexuality seminar. Our responses to that wound have been attempts at self-salvation, self-preservation, self-restoration, and all of our attempts, instead of actually healing us, have damaged us even more. And into this mess, right, and into this chaos of sadness, pain, loneliness, guilt, and shame walks Jesus with an offer to make us new right, to give us new life, to make us beautiful, right, to satisfy and to fulfill us, to make us even better than before. If you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I told this story about this painting, uh, the Madonna del Cardellino, that Raphael gave to his good friend as a wedding present. And you remember that it was, you know, this house was crushed in an earthquake and it was broken into these 17 pieces and over the course of 500 year, there, years, there were all of these sort of attempts to restore the painting, and they all actually left the painting worse off than it had been before. And so in the mid-1990s, it was sort of rotting away in the Uffizi Gallery. And at that time, uh, in 1998, a team of over 50 art historians, artists, 
and technical advisors teamed up to completely restore this painting. They began with x-rays. We saw one of those at the very beginning. They, they used CAT scans and lasers and infrared photography in order to discover Raphael's original creation below 500 years worth of dirt and grime and paint and glue that had been used to try to restore the painting. After 10 years, these 50 artists, art historians, and technicians, after 10 years of cleaning, removing paint, glue, nails, cleaning again, resurfacing, and repainting, the original glory of Raphael's work could now be seen again. And here's a picture of that painting. That's fantastic. You can see the original depth of the reds and the blues, the greens, looking like they're five years old instead of 500 years old. The painting is as good as new. But that's actually not true, right? The truth is, it's even better. It's actually better, right? If the painting had never been broken, it would have been sort of hanging out in some art museum somewhere in Europe, and on your way, day 23 through Italy, you would have sort of marched through this art museum, and you would have walked right by it, right? And you would have turned to your friend, and you would have said, hey, let's go get some gelato. That's what you would have said, right? You would have walked right by it. If the painting hadn't been shoddily and hurriedly repaired, probably wouldn't care. We wouldn't have been talking about it today. It's in the remaking and the restoration of the painting that it becomes even more wonderful, right? It's the story of restoration that gives it a depth and a beauty that it just wouldn't have otherwise, right? That's, that's the message of the woman at the well. It's the message of the prodigal son, It's the message of the story of Zacchaeus. It's the message of the man who was born blind being healed. It's the message of the healing of the leper in Luke chapter 5. And it's the same truth. It's the same message for you and for me, right? That Jesus came to make all things new. He came to make you better than you were before. And he begins this process today with you and with me. If you look around the room this morning, there are tables with bread and wine, there are tables with bread and grape juice, and this is a meal that we call the Lord's Supper. Some people have called it the Eucharist. Um, It's called communion, all of these things, but in it, what's being symbolized here is the body and the blood of Christ, which was shed for you in order to make you beautiful, more beautiful than you would have been otherwise, right? And this meal today symbolizes forgiveness, it symbolizes uh, restoration, it symbolizes redemption, it symbolizes adoption, but it symbolizes that if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, that when God looks at you, he sees you as beautiful. And not just beautiful, he sees you as perfect, because he sees Christ in you. I'm going to read the words of institution now. And I'm going to ask you to simply sit there this morning and think about the ways in which God is offering you this new life to make you new, to make you beautiful. And then once you've taken some time to think about the forgiveness that's offered to you if you trust in Christ alone, I invite you to get up and to receive the Lord's table.
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that um, the good news, the gospel um, of restoration and redemption would not be merely theoretical for us. But Father, I pray that we would give you access to our brokenness, um, to CAT scan us, to x-ray us. Um, Father, to, to use your scalpel to open up our chest cavity in order to reveal to us our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us all of the ways in which we've tried to restore ourselves. And Father, all the ways in which um, this whole time we've only been making matters worse because we've been trying to do it all apart from you. So Father, this morning, I pray that as we uh, take this bread and as we drink this wine, that we would once again remember that our only restoration comes uh, at the hands of you, the real master. Father, I pray that this bread and this wine today would remind us of your son Jesus, who did everything that was required to make all things new. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.